Would you go to Psalm 22 with me, please, today? Psalm 22. For those who are visiting, and we've got visitors today, we're glad you're here. Some of those are my brothers and their wives with us today, and we're excited to have them. We've got family members, and another dear friend of ours, uh, Phil and Faith Bausch, are here today, and their family too. And uh, we've got uh, some wonderful folks with us, and other visitors are here too. We're very glad you're here. Um, but Psalm 22 uh, is the passage that we go to now. I take you there every time we have a communion service, which is about four times a year. We do it quarterly. If it's the fifth Sunday of a month, it's a communion Sunday. And uh, many years back, I would take you to Isaiah 53, and we, we worked through that passage for quite a number of years. And we have been in Psalm 22 for now quite a few sermons. And uh, so that's the focus for our message here this morning. The primary verses I want to focus on are verse 4, 5, and all the way to verse 23. Right? I'm putting those together today. In verse 4, in you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered, in you they trusted and were not disappointed. Verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you descendants of Israel. I'm going to put those together here this morning. Heavenly Father, help us. We have your word open again. Thank you for the privilege of having your word in our hand right now. We give our attention to it. We're going to learn from that. Uh, That word speaks of you and what you have done for us speaks of our Savior who gave his life for us. And we will remember that today in our communion service. I just pray that uh, our hearts will be engaged, that we will not only listen with our minds, but we will also be quick to say, Lord, what would you have me to do? We want to respond to what we see. And so challenge our hearts thoroughly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when we read verse 4 and 5 just a minute ago, you might have noticed this. These are statements of fact. They take cases, uh, events that have happened in the past and were used by the writer of the psalm as evidence for his argument throughout. We know, as we've been studying this passage, that the overwhelming characteristic of Psalm 22 concerns our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's prophetic. It speaks of of his crucifixion. And it's not uncommon in the New Testament to find in the Gospels, during the time of his crucifixion, that they quote from Psalm 22. And many of the verses you notice um, are literally fulfilled in Christ on the cross. David is the writer of this psalm. And even on his worst days, he could not have literally applied these verses to himself. Look at verse number 14, for example. 14, 15, all the way through verse 18. Look at these words. He says, I am poured out like water, all my joints are out of, all my bones are out of joint, my heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. 
A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garment among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. You picture a cross, don't you? David wrote these words. Back in verse number 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? David wrote those words. Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. And even those who were there to view the crucifixion are mentioned. Verse 7 and 8, for example. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with their lip. They wag their head saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. Those were the folks down at the bottom of the cross who actually played the part of bringing it about. The leaders and the scribes and others who were fulfilling these words by calling out uh, to Jesus to save himself from the cross. These are quoted in the New Testament. Now, David may have experienced a lot of troubles in his day, and he did. Maybe this is the way he described life, being chased by King Saul for some ten years. Uh, Every day, David was in danger of being put to death if Saul should catch him. Maybe this is how it felt. Or maybe when his son Absalom, later in his life, his son Absalom rebelled against him and tried to take the throne away from him, and David ran for his life out of the city of Jerusalem. Maybe this is how it felt. But from our vantage point, we can see, standing on this side of the cross, looking back, that's what he was talking about. He didn't even know it, probably. But he was speaking about the crucifixion of Christ. So when we go into our passage today, and you see verse number 4 and 5 here in front of you, let me back up to even verse number 3. Yet you are holy, he writes, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, And you are fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. Let me just paint a simple picture to get started with. Here's David in a great deal of trouble. And he's calling out to the Lord to help him in the midst of his trouble. And he says, Lord, I have very good reason to call out to you because we have a history of you coming to rescue those in trouble. And I count on that, that you're going to rescue me today. And so he's bringing up events in the past to say, Lord, I know I can trust you in this. Matter of fact, verse 3, 4, and 5 is quite a contrast to verse 1 and 2. 1 and 2, he started with, I'm in trouble. (laughs) Why have you forsaken me? I'm calling out for you and you you don't seem to hear me. Matter of fact, I'm over here, and I'm in trouble, and you're way over there, and I don't know if you're going to make it in time. He uses the word forsaken. That's a pretty heavy word. Lord, you forsook me. Where else can I go? It's far from my hopes of any deliverance. Far. Sometimes we might use the word too late. You're not going to make it. Uh, They're they're already closing in, Lord. I'm not going to make it. But you know what? God is never late. Never late. He he never... In this case, when we read these words in verse number 1, and we think of the cross, God wasn't too late when His Son cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God wasn't too late. 
You may say, well, why, why didn't he rescue his son? Didn't he want to rescue his son? Well, it wasn't in his plans, was it? No? Jesus knew that, didn't he? Going to the cross, he wasn't appealing to God to change his mind. Oh, Lord, would you, would you please just take me down from here? He was stating a fact. The fact is, God left him alone on the cross. Left him alone. And I think that was probably a stunning moment in all of this. To be alone for the first time in all of the Father's plans. You know, these two together, I've mentioned this in previous sermons, but it created the world together. It goes and shows us in Scripture. The Old Testament says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You go to the New Testament, the earth and heaven and all was created by the Word. That's Jesus Christ. And they were engaged in every single thing together, all the way through. Creation, yes. In his life on this earth, yes. They did everything together. And we see that in the planning of salvation and all the different parts. They were inseparable. Act after act after act after act. But when it came to dying on a cross, the Father did not die for you, the Son did. It was Jesus Christ who went alone. And if the Father had saved His Son, He couldn't have saved you. Aren't you glad He saved you? There's a contrast then set up here. It's rather quite interesting. As David is appealing for God who, by His testimony by his faithfulness who delivers to those who are in trouble. He has the contrast in front of us as we see it that his son he did not deliver on purpose so that he could save us. And I love the contrast. It's got a tension in it and it's really fun to see. But there's clearly a difference between verse 1 and 2 of crying out, Lord, you're not answering. Crying out, Lord, you're not answering. And then trusting in his deliverance. See, in verse 3 through 5, David refers to the fathers, his ancestors, the ones who have gone on before him. And he says, Lord, I have the record. You have delivered time after time after time after time. Now, would you agree with me on this at least, that the Israelites had a great track record of getting into trouble? Pretty clear, isn't it? You go through the Old Testament, and how many times have you been reading along and said, What's wrong with these people? You ever feel that? It's just over and over. They're caught up in the consequences of their sins. You would think they've learned from their past. But they were very quick to get back into trouble. One of the hardest books, and if you're reading through the Bible, you've already done it. All right? You read the book of Judges. It's good stories. I mean, everybody likes the hero that comes and rescues. But it represents 330 years of time. And in Judges 2, it sets this up. And I'm just going to read some verses. If you want the references, or say them out. Judges 2, verse 10. All of this starts when Joshua died. Joshua, the leader, took him into the promised land and all that. And it says in chapter 2, verse 10, All the generations also were gathered to the fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord. That's sad, isn't it? They did not know the Lord, and they did not know the work that God had done for Israel. And so it goes on to say in verse 11 and through 14, 
the sons of Israel did evil in the sights of the Lord and served the Baals. That was idolatry. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of the Egypt, out of Egypt. They followed after other gods among the gods of the people who were around them. They bowed themselves down to them and they provoked the Lord's anger, it said. So they forsook the Lord, Lord, and they served the Baal and the Ashtoreth and all the other idols out there. And the anger of the, bur- of the Lord burned against them. And he gave them into the hands of plunderers and, who plundered them and sold them into the hands of the enemies around them. And they could no longer stand before their enemies. It's a sad commentary, but that's how the book starts. You say, oh boy, it's going to get worse. <laughs> and it does. Matter of fact, I need a little help. All the children out there who can do addition, you're going to do some math for me, okay? Can you do it? Pay close attention. Every time I give you a year, you're going to add it to the numbers. All right? Keep the numbers going. I've got about five times or so, so count the numbers for me, okay? Ready? You adults, I know you're going to do it too. Okay, here it starts. Judges 3, verse 8. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel... So that he sold them into the hand of Christian Rashathayam. Aren't you glad it's not a spelling test? Uh, king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served Christian eight years. Got it? Hold that thought. Eight. All right. Chapter 3, verse 14. The sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Quick math. Got a number? Okay. Verse 4, or chapter two, 4, verse 2. The Lord has sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. And the sons of Israel cried to the Lord in 900 chariots. Don't count that. He had 900 chariots and oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. There's your next number. 20. So you got 8, 18, and 20. All right? In chapter... Verse number 1. The sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. Seven more. Verse number 7, 8 of chapter 10. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. They were afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year for 18 years. They afflicted the sons of Israel. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now the sons of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. The Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines 40 years. All right, quick math. What number do we have? 111? 111? I hope it's 111, because that's what I have on my page, too. If nothing else, we're all right together. That makes me feel better. 111 years. 111 years. Now, it doesn't take long to realize that these people were in trouble a lot. And when you put it to the fact that Israel is given the history there for 330 years, that means one out of every three years they were in trouble. Quite a track record. One out of every three years they were in bondage because of their sin. And yet, even after 111 years of bondage, every time Israel cried out for deliverance, God sent a deliverer. 
would you have? He sent to deliver. Here's what I found very interesting. I, that's the phrase. Every time Israel cried out for deliverance, God sent to deliver. And when I typed that out on my, my computer, I looked at it and said, well, I'm using the same word over and over again here. And so I went to my thesaurus on my laptop, and I typed it. I highlighted the word deliverance, or deliver, and I said, give me another word for that. This is really great. Or tell me, my laptop's been used a lot for sermons, because the first word popped up, it said Jesus. I said, ooh, wasn't that cool? I don't think Microsoft knows that. <laughs> but that's what it did when I said What's another word for deliverer? It said, Jesus. I said, perfect. But in this case, he sends a judge over and over and over. He rescued them. They cried out and they were delivered. In you, they trusted and were not disappointed. Now, I know their trust factor was pretty low, wasn't it? When we see these things. But Jesus talks about that. He says, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot of faith to move a mountain. How much? Like the size of a mustard seed, a little bit like that. But I have only referenced to you folks the book of Judges. We could go into all those other books, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, Esther, Nehemiah, host of other places. We could all mark it, but here's what we would find. Through all those ages, we have found that God is a great deliverer. How many times he came to the rescue and you say, well, yeah, that's Old Testament. Look at the New Testament. Disciples out in a boat in the storm. How many times were they there in that situation and Jesus saved them? Many times. One guy was sinking in the water, remember? God saved him. Jesus reached out and brought him back up. How many times were the apostles, um, for example, how, how many times... Did, did they get arrested, if you read the book of Acts, in danger of being captured, in danger of being killed, and the Lord stepped in to rescue their lives? Over and over and over, the New Testament gives us records of these things. You go to the pages of scriptures, and you can see these events. Even if they forgot what God had done for them five minutes before, He was so, so faithful to deliver them. You go beyond the pages of Scripture. You read the biographies of godly men and women over history. I love reading stories about other believers or in different times, different places. The missionaries you can read about. The pioneer missionaries that went out and faced things that were absolutely incredible. God delivered them. Read the reformers of the days of the Reformation and their lives and what God did for them. Read of Pastors, read of Jewish believers who survived the Holocaust and came to know Christ as Savior and realized the deliverance was in Him. Read about those in the jungles of South America. Read, read about those on the battlefields of places even as currently as Iran or Afghanistan. Or even now, stories are being written coming out of Ukraine. Believers who have been delivered and delivered and delivered. The fact is, God knows how to do it. And he hasn't quit that business. Isn't that good news? He still delivers us today. And when verse 3 was read to you a bit ago, it's a simple thing. The praises of Israel ascended up into heaven. And when you get up that high, you realize, well, God's throne is above it all. It's above it all. You are holy, he says. You are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. And then I take you to something more personal. Just think yourself. 
Think yourself of the reason why you should praise Him. According to Scripture, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Is that right? It says so. You were lost. You were blind. You were living in darkness. You were helpless. You were hopeless. You were under the influence of evil of the evil one. You were a child of wrath and walking toward the path of destruction. As Charles Wesley wrote, Long my imprisoned lay, fast bound in sin, and nature's night. Praise the Lord, he didn't leave us there. I'm not afraid to give God credit here. And I, it, it ought to be. If he didn't seek me out, I would have never been found. If he hadn't done this and rescued me, I would have never been rescued. I can't pat myself on the back for my salvation. I didn't earn it. I didn't do it. I didn't bring it about. It's God who rescued me. It's God who opened my eyes. I would have been forever satisfied with the food of the pigs. But like the prodigal son, he brought me to my senses. <laughs> He's the one who, who showed me I was lost. He showed me how lost my estate was. He revealed how sinful I was. And how I cannot pay that price for my sin. Even if I had a whole stack of eternities to pay it with, I could never pay one price for my sin. But Jesus, He reached down. He reached down to save me. I remember understanding the depth of my sin when I was in Bible college. You were in Bible college, right? You're supposed to know something when you get there. And I'm sitting there in the book of Romans, and we're going through it chapter by chapter. And by the time we were into, verse, into chapter 3 and toward verse 4, I felt so hopeless, I couldn't stand it. It talked about how we were, you know, sinners. And all of us had sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I'm reading that. And I say, wow, I never knew it was that bad. And the more I saw it, the more I sat there thinking, Lord, without you, I can't do anything. I'm hopeless here. The depth of sin was so incredible to me. I remember sitting there going through that, those chapters, and then when chapter 5 hit me, whoa, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. Oh, what a relief. <laughs> what a beautiful thing to read. While I was yet a sinner, He knew my state. He knew my state. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, and I woke, and the dungeon flamed with light, and my chains fell off, and my hands were free. I rose up, went forth, and followed thee. I love the transition in Charles Wesley's song, how it goes from a dungeon to freedom. Folks, that's the difference he's made in you too. That's what he's done. Because that list I gave you previously of being dead in your trespasses and sins, through faith in Jesus Christ, now you could say, I'm a new creature in Christ, right? You could stand here and say, I'm called, I'm justified, I'm redeemed, I'm reconciled, I'm forgiven, I'm adopted. I'm a friend of God, a child of God. I'm an heir of God. I'm a joint heir with Christ, a saint by calling. 
I'm sanctified, I'm righteous, I'm immersed in the body of Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, filled with His mercy, lavished with His grace, anchored by hope, and at peace with God. Is that a great transition or what? Amazing what He's done to deliver us. I want to ask you, what makes you praise the Lord? That's my list. That's what He's done for me. And I could show you, as I could show you in Scripture... Praises come from those who have experienced the deliverance of God. That should be our first response right away. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We want to tell somebody about it. What David is saying in Psalm 22 is simple. He says, The forefathers of Israel cried out in their distress, and they found God who delivered them. And we could say the forefathers of our faith also cried out to God in their distress and found Him to be their deliverer. They trusted in Him. And folks, when you trust in God, you will never be disappointed. Never. I say this every now and then, but when you get to heaven, you're not going to say, Oh man, that's not what I was thinking. It's going to be far better than what you could imagine. He's not going to disappoint you and never will. You cried out to God... And you have found him faithful to deliver you, haven't you? Time after time. Matter of fact, if he saved your soul, do you think he's concerned about your life too? And he's probably stepped in time and time and time again to help you through this life. So, let let me ask this question. Since all this is true, that we have a historical event time and time and time again that points to a God who delivers, why is verse 23 necessary? Flip over there and look at it again. Because all those other verses were statements of fact. God delivered. They cried out, God delivered, God delivered, God delivered, God delivered. So when you get to verse 23, he suddenly is saying, now this is what I command you to do. What's it say here? You who fear the Lord, praise Him. Why do those who fear the Lord need that command? All you descendants of Jacob, glorify Him. Why do they need that command? All you descendants of Israel, stand in awe of Him. Why must He tell them to praise God? Why? Don't you find that interesting? I, I sometimes find that frustrating, actually. As you read through the Old Testament, how quick they were to forget what God had done. It's like, what, what's, what's wrong with you people? No sooner did you go through the Red Sea, they accused God of wanting them to dehydrate to death. No water! No sooner did Joshua divide up the promised land and die that the Israelites dove into the sins of the Canaanites. No sooner did Jesus feed 5,000 with his disciples, they couldn't figure out how to feed 4,000. How many times do we read that and see that and say, what's wrong with you people? Of course, it's them and it's not us, is it? We're not like that. No, never. It still troubles me, and I I say this every time we do this. When Jesus took bread and the cup, and he gave it to his disciples, he told them, remember me. 
how could you forget Jesus? How can you take of a bread or take of this cup? And he says, do this in remembrance of me. And say, well, Lord, how could we ever forget? Two things stand out in verse 23 to me. Two things stand out. How likely even those who fear the Lord are apt to forget to praise Him. It's said to do it. And then you say, oh yeah, that's right. That's what I'm supposed to do. Why did we need the reminder? We're so apt to forget. We, we need the command, praise Him. Praise Him. I can't tell you how many times in Scripture that is, but it is in the New Testament too. Praise Him. Praise Him. Praise Him. Praise Him. Praise Him. It's just all over Scripture. It's as if we must be the most forgetful people on earth. God knew our minds, didn't He? But He tells us, remember, 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 remember. And here He said, even as we have this communion table set up right now, He says, as long as you do these things, do you remember the Lord's death until He comes. We need the reminder so we don't forget. So that's one thing I noticed. The second thing, and it's not that it's more important or less important, it's just the same thing. Uh, The second thing is, not only are we likely to forget, we're very likely not to share it. We're very likely not to share with others what God has done. You don't keep praise quiet. It wasn't meant to be quiet. It was meant to be noisy. If you think going to heaven is going to be a calm, peaceful hammock, you know, on the summer day with lemonade and everybody's quiet up there, you're in for a surprise. They're not quiet up there. And it's not going to be quiet up there. But praise was meant to be spoken with the mouth, loud enough for others to hear. You see, you may not have been among those, I know you weren't, who crossed through the Red Sea. (laughs) You weren't there smelling the fishy water and seeing the towers of the walls of the water beside you. You weren't there that day. You didn't see the Canaanite chariots get routed by the Lord and stuck in the mud and all the wars that throw them into confusion when Barak was chasing them. You weren't there when Goliath fell to the ground with a stone in his head. You weren't there. You didn't watch Jesus calm the storm. You you weren't there when he was crucified. But what was tragic about these stories is that there were those who were there and then they moved on with their lives and they forgot not only what they saw, but they forgot to tell their kids. They didn't share it with their children. They didn't share it with their grandchildren. The command in Deuteronomy, if you remember, to the uh, Jews was that the father was to teach his child. Matter of fact, I'm going to read it to you so you hear what it said. In Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 1, goes through verse 7. This is the commandment, he says, the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life and all the days that they may be prolonged 
O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And these words I am commanding you today, they shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and talk to them about it when you sit down in the house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. And Israel was notorious for not telling their children. How many times it shows up in the Old Testament that they did not do that? And here we get to Psalm 22. Right in the midst of all this stuff, he says, You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify Him. Stand in awe of Him. All you descendants of Israel, tell somebody what He has done for you. It's a fact I could show you clearly in Scripture. You're not saved by the experience of your forefathers. Just because grandpa was a believer doesn't mean somehow that transferred to the children or the grandchildren. I wish it could, but it's not that way. The generations that follow us have to hear how great our God is at deliverance and what He did to deliver us from sin. They need to hear it. Guess whose mouths have that job? Wild guess. Anybody want to try? Those who know it. Those who know it. You love your children, don't you? Oh, don't answer. I mean, you love your grandchildren, don't you? Do you want them to know? you want them to know how God has delivered you so that they can trust Him too? So that they can trust Him? They need to hear our stories too. Just like the record is before Israel. This is what God did. This is what God did. This is what God did. Now, praise Him. That's our response. Because as many as received Him, Scripture says, He gave them the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. And they're not born of blood. They're not born of the will of the flesh. They're not born of the will of man. They're just born of God. And you have been too, through faith in Jesus Christ. Tell them that. So they're not thinking, I'm going to be saved because Grandpa went to church. I'm going to be saved because mom always took me to that Wednesday night thing. That was true. I'd be saved a dozen times over because we didn't miss anything on Wednesdays, right? Sunday mornings, Saturdays, cleaning the church. How many times did we do that? We know this story, but mom didn't save me. Jesus did. My dad didn't save me. Jesus did. Guess who saved my mom and dad? Jesus did. Who's going to tell the children? If we don't speak of our trust in the Lord, who's going to tell them? The TV? Trust that? The internet? Facebook, no doubt. You know what? It's a sad thing. And I've seen this so many times before, and I just want to say this. The day somebody goes on to be into eternity, the family who knows the Lord... Sometimes they have to sift through all their things looking for the single little sliver that gives them some sort of hope that maybe they knew Jesus. 
You remember anything like that? Where you're trying to figure, do they know? Do they know? And then we find the smallest of slivers and we say, I'm going to hang my hope on that sliver. Folks, don't leave a sliver. Leave a mountain of evidence that you trust the Lord. Don't let them guess. Tell them so. Make your appeal to that next generation and say, fear Him. Glorify Him. Stand in awe of Him. This is what the Lord has done for me. He can do it for you too. Don't leave them questioning. Don't leave them surprised. I I recounted this story several months ago in one of the sermons. I, I just love repeating it. The story where Jesus went on the other side of the Sea of Galilee Just an interesting uh, mission he was on. The disciples were going with him thinking, Lord, we're going to that island. You're you're really going over there? We don't want to go over there. That is a tombstone area. That's a graveyard. That's a mess over there. Matter of fact, there's demon-possessed people that live up there. Why are we going here? And Jesus kept that boat going that direction and says, yeah, we got some place to stop. He comes out of the boat and demon-possessed men came running toward him. And the disciples, you can feel, ah! Right? And Jesus stands there and one of them comes and falls before him. And Jesus starts to talk to him. And this man cries out with a loud voice, what business do we have to do with each other? Jesus, son of the most high God, I beg you, do not torment me. That was a demon. And Jesus commanded the unclean spirit to come out of this man. And there was more dialogue there, because you know the story. Because the demon says, well, let us go in that pig herd over there. Let us go over there. And I'm going to skip that part for a few minutes, because you know what happened. He cast out the demon. It went into the pigs. The pigs ran over the, the cliff and into the water and drowned. Right? You remember that? But I want to focus on the man. And the man suddenly is without any demon within him. And he's sitting there, clothed, in his right mind. And the people are astonished. They'd never seen him like this before. What a difference. And matter of fact, they were so scared, they told Jesus, go away. You know, they were really upset that day. But this this man, as Jesus went back to the boat with his disciples, they were going to just go back across the lake. And this demon-possessed man, who no longer was possessed, came running up behind Jesus and he says, I want to go with you. That's precious. I want to go with you, he said. And Jesus said, no, no. I want you to go home. Could you imagine when he walked in the door? (laughs) Go home and describe for them what great things God has done for you. I love that verse. It's as if this chapter, Psalm 22, is yelling out the same thing. Go and tell somebody what great things God has done for you. What great things God has done for you. So this man went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Do you have something to tell your children, your grandchildren? Do you know how Jesus had saved you? Can you tell somebody else? Somebody you love? Tell them what great things God has done for you. When we pass this bread and this cup, no doubt you've had this before. Some little voice next to you says, what's this for? Or they would say, can I do it too? And you would say something like this. Well, when we get home, we'll talk about it. And you go home and do you talk about it? 
Do you tell them what that cup is all about? Do you tell them what that bread is all about? Do you recount the story, the reason why we remember what it speaks of? Do you talk about Jesus and how he delivered us from the penalty of our sins? Do you talk about the eternal life he's given you? Do you talk about that? Do you speak of it with reverence? Do you, do you speak it with, with the due honor that it should have, with the awe that accompanies it, that we did not deserve this? But he did it, didn't he? What Christ has done. Aren't you glad he did this? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> yes! You know it. Does your children hear it? Does your grandchildren hear it? Let's not be the generation where the story ends. The forefathers knew it. But let's not leave it there. Let's not leave it there. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. You cried out, or to you they cried out. They were delivered. In you they trusted and they were not disappointed. So you who fear the Lord, praise Him. You who are descended of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. That's my appeal to you today as we take this bread, as we drink this cup. It's a reminder, right? More than just a reminder of just what Jesus did for us, but a reminder now to go and tell somebody else. Go share this good news with somebody. I'm going to have the elders come up now at this time as we partake of this together.